Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drantz. We are live from the Kintech studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. As mentioned, of course, it is a Canucks game day there in Pittsburgh to take on Sidney Crosby and the Penguins. And now joining us uh, from the Athletic covering the Pittsburgh Penguins and the NHL, he is Rob Rossi. Rob, thank you for doing this. How are you? I am great, gentlemen. How are you today? We're doing very well. And, you know, we were talking in our in our opening segment a little bit about just kind of what an up-and-down season it's been for the Penguins. There's been some really good moments. I know they've won seven of their last ten. There's been some really frustrating things happen, you know, certainly on the power play for stretches there. They have a positive goal differential, but they're outside the playoff picture right now looking in. How would you kind of describe and sum up the Penguins' season so far? Um... That's a really good question. I haven't thought about condensing it into a word. Um, uh, I would say in a weird way, sort of emblematic of what's been going on this decade for the Penguins, which is the stars have been carrying them. Um, they need some more help in other areas. At times, uh, actually most of the time, they've gotten really good goaltending, although Tristan Jari's Tristan Jari had some bumps in the road uh, recently and early in the season uh power play probably isn't as good as it should be based off the talent um penalty kills i think maybe over over exceeded expectations a bit and uh they're still trying to figure things out i will say since kyle dubas came out about i want to say it's like 12 games ago or something like that Mm -hmm. and uh uh, sort of uh, issued a state of the Penguins address while taking some questions from us. Um, they've they've played their best hockey. Uh, even the games they've lost, uh, they've looked strong in. I think they're finding an identity, and um, you know they have been a better team defensively over the last month than the numbers suggest for the year. Um, and if they are going to get into the playoffs, I, I do think it's going to be in. Uh, as not as a wild card, but as a division second or third place because the division is kind of a a mess after the Rangers. And I think that will bode well for them uh, because they have a lot of division games left and, um, you know, that will be in their control. But, uh, you know, it's to be where they are, you know, mid-January after the offseason they had, um, it's a disappointment, especially with the way Crosby's been going. You know, you mentioned Kyle Dubas and and him coming out and kind of delivering an address there when things maybe weren't going the way they wanted it to go. His first year on the job in Pittsburgh, how would you assess how he's done? And what have you kind of learned about Kyle Dubas covering him so far this year, his first year in Pittsburgh? Uh, Learn that he doesn't really let anybody talk or love to really talk to the media that much. Um which uh, I guess they knew in Toronto, but wasn't really a thing that I knew too much about, um, which is fine. Um, I think we need to remember it's fair to Dubas and his team. You know, Ron Hextall and Brian Burke left them in a disastrous situation. I mean, they were a team on life support uh, for the final three months of last season, most, mostly because of mismanagement. Um, you know, I don't blame... Hextall Burke or Jim Rutherford, you know, now with the Canucks for, you know, having the Penguins have a barren system 
of prospects. When you have Crosby, Malkin, Latang, you know, when you have that core that's one, I think you go for it every year. I, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these people that uh, worries about three years from now. You try to win now. Um, but uh, because of that, you needed their general managers, I think, to be aggressive. Jim was hyper-aggressive. Um, Ron Hextall was the exact opposite. Um, they needed somebody more like Jim. Dubis this offseason was more like Jim in that he took big swings. When you take big swings, sometimes they don't always work, and sometimes they don't always work as fast as you want. Um, you know, I'm speaking about Eric Carlson, think, thinking about Riley Smith, um, you know, the commitment to uh, Tristan Jari as goal. But you know what? The Penguins have the third best goals above um, expectations in the league this year. Their goaltending has actually been one of their bright spots. They've had a lot of depth. Um, Riley Smith hasn't been good for them. Uh, Eric Carlson, I don't think we've seen. I mean, look, he's he's been five at five on five, and he's eating up a lot of minutes, but there was a lot of expectation that the power play would win them games and it hasn't. But I give him a lot of credit, Dubis, that is, for recognizing what he had to do without leaving himself handicapped so that if this does not work out this year, he can still make some moves to sort of retool around the team along with some salary cap space that's going to be opening up, but not necessarily without, without planning for the future. He has a plan. There was no discernible plan under the previous management regime. So that alone is a big difference. Rob, how do you think that plan might interact with the high level of interest in national insider circles, but also in the Vancouver market, and I'm sure in Pittsburgh as well, around contract negotiations or extension negotiations and the potential availability ahead of the trade deadline of Jake Gensel? Well, uh, you know, that's a great question. I, you know, um, I think Vancouver would be a, a spot if you're looking for a rental that, that makes a lot of sense, given his history uh, with Rick Tockett and uh, Jim Rutherford. Um, Jake Gensel's a really good hockey player still. Um, and Jake Gensel's the type of hockey player, you know, probably maybe looks to a lot of people from the outside of Pittsburgh that, you know, I plays with Sidney Crosby. Look, a lot of people have played with Sidney Crosby. Two guys have really played well with Sidney Crosby, Chris Kutnitz and Jake Gensel, and they're both high IQ hockey players. So, you know, I think Jake, you know, if the Penguins were to trade him, um, I think Vancouver would be a place where he would fit in and certainly be a help, uh, you know, for the playoffs, bringing some veteran leadership there. I think the Penguins are going to make the decision for Dubas. Um, you know, if they keep playing as they have the last, say, three weeks, up until the all-star break, I think it's going to be tough to trade Gensel because they're probably only going to be a couple points out of a playoff spot, two or three. And I think it's harder to sort of move them, move him with that. That said, if they hit a skid and coming out of the all-star break, they're, you know, seven points out of a playoff spot, whether it's within a division or the wild card, then I think Dubas is going to try to create a market. Um, because they haven't had negotiations this this season, they haven't talked uh, Gensel and his Gensel's agent and Dubis since last summer, and it's it sounds like from what I've heard that they're content both sides to sort of go to the off season. The Penguins haven't had an asset like Gensel since Jordan Stahl, and even that was a trade they did at the NHL draft. I, I, I just you know in my time covering the Penguins, they've never had an asset that they were willing to possibly deal at the 
trade deadline that, that could give them some serious return back. They would want back a, you know, uh, one of the top prospects in the organization and probably an NHL player. I don't necessarily know that they're that interested in a draft first round pick, given that the team they would trade him to probably isn't going to have a first round pick that interests the Penguins much. Rob, I'm curious to ask you about the similarities between Rutherford's first 18 months in Pittsburgh and and what we've seen in Vancouver, you know, in particular, the way the Mike Johnston um, season went club makes the playoffs on the last day uh, of the regular season loses unceremoniously in the first round roundly criticized starts slow the next year. And then the club hits one of the all time heaters. Uh, Mike Sullivan comes in, you know, Trevor Daly, Justin Schultz, the whole blue line rebuild. When you look at this Canucks team post Boudreaux, I mean, does it feel a little bit similar? The right coach, a huge heater of depth player acquisitions. Um, are we seeing something somewhat similar, albeit without Crosby? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I think the difference is Jim inherited, you know, two two of the, you know, 25 greatest, yeah. you know, offensive players of all time with Crosby and Malkin, and in Crosby, one of the five best players ever probably, in their primes, right? So they had already won. Um, their, their, their nucleus had already won. It was about getting them back. Um, but I, in, in, in the same regard, I do view it similar in that Jim needed a year to figure out the culture of the organization um, of the market. And I think he really needed, you know, he needed a year and a half really to find the coach that would be perfect for that team. I, I thought I was surprised Rick took the job, to be honest. I thought he didn't, might not want to take a job in season, but, you know, I spoke with him a few months ago for a story I wrote in the athletic about Sidney Crosby and uh, Alex Ovechkin. And we were just sort of talking and, you know, he ended up telling me that's one of the things he is most glad he did because it really gave him an assessment of, not only what he was working with, but how to coach these guys. Um, I think when you give Jim a coach that he feels like there is a relationship with in terms of um, communication, that was Mike Sullivan in Pittsburgh, Rick Tockett in Vancouver, um, Peter LaViolette um, in uh, Carolina. Um, I think when you give him that type of coach, that brings out the best in Jim because Jim's really good at sort of big picture thoughts, right? I think the day-to-day stuff, Jim really needs somebody he trusts. So in that way, I think Patrick Alvain and, and uh, Rick Pocket have been really good for him because they're, they're sort of in the weeds type of guys, right? And Rick's such a great manager of personalities. But yeah, I, I, I see a lot of similarity there and that's why I'm not surprised. Um, I think what it also did was, I think from afar, and you know, you'd know this better than me, is it took some time for both Jim and Rick to figure out the intangibles of the great young players they have there. Um, Those intangibles were kind of known in Pittsburgh. It was a matter of those players getting comfortable, those veterans getting comfortable with Jim, whereas this looks like it's a little bit of an inverse of that but I think we're seeing the fruits of that knowledge now. Yeah. And one of the things that with Rick Tockett and spe- uh, specifically, cause we hear from him so often, right. All the, all, you know, almost every day with practices and, and game days, but 
I think the market has been really kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to be too flowery here, but kind of enamored with just his communication style, the way he talks about the game, how frank and open and honest uh, he's been. And it's easy to see how that would translate to the players as well. You know, I know he was an assistant, so it's a little bit different with how often he's talking to the media in Pittsburgh. But was that evident when you were covering Rick Tockett when he was on the Penguins bench as well? Rick Tockett is a no BS um, type who brings a lot of equity to any dressing room because of that, that he played the game, played the game at a very high level and played it at a time when, you know, let's be honest, there was a sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, grit and toughness factor that I think a lot of players, you know, maybe the game isn't as targeted around much. So, you know, Tockett brings a reputation as a tough guy, a fair guy, but I think his skill as a communicator is the most underrated thing. You know, one of the reasons the Penguins' power play, I'm convinced, has been as bad as it's been since Tockett left is, frankly, he could get Crosby, Malkin, and Latang to listen to them. Hmm. Uh, they, he had a way of speaking directly to the heart of the matter, but also understanding stars. And look, Rick played with Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux, and on some great Philadelphia Flyers teams, um, he knows how to talk to stars in a way that stars are receptive to that. He also knows skill. Rick doesn't think of himself as a skilled player, but he knows how to sort of recognize skill and how to sort of add that element of, you know, I would say for lack of a better way, um, grind, right? Um, and I think he understands leadership on an innate level. So because of all those things, I think you're seeing in, in Vancouver, at least, again, it looks at me from afar, that those type of things really are what the, the Canucks young, you know, young group needed. I don't know if the Penguins needed all of that, but what they did need was a guy that could speak directly to the stars on specific things and reinforce what Mike Sullivan was saying. And also, something I've always heard about Rick as an assistant that I think really benefited Mike Sullivan, um, and I don't know if this is that way with his assistants out there, though I'm guessing it is, knowing Sergey Gonchar the way I do. Um, Rick was never afraid to speak his mind as an assistant coach. He was never afraid to be devil's advocate. And the Penguins really benefited from that. And my guess is he has... Um, built a coaching staff that feels similarly empowered to sort of get their thoughts out. And when you have that, um, I think you're creating the type of atmosphere where everybody's going in the right direction for the right reason. Rob, you mentioned uh, Sidney Crosby, uh, you know, and just kind of the weight he has and, you know, how Rick Tockett was able to talk to him in a way that maybe other coaches uh, wouldn't be able to with a star of his magnitude. And, you know, Crosby, it's absolutely incredible what he's doing again this year at the age of 36. The just the year after year excellence is something uh, to marvel at. But, you know, you also look at it and he is 36. He has one more year left on his contract after this one and I know you know as you kind of alluded to with Dubas there's this delicate balance of you want to go for it when Crosby is still performing like this you also want to plan for eventually a post Crosby future how difficult is it to kind of sell that to Sidney Crosby right because obviously he's a competitive guy he wants to win I mean if it did come down to something like trading Jake Gensel at the deadline 
like how does the Crosby relationship interact with trying to potentially plan for the future? Well, I think you have to have an honest conversation with Sid. And if you're going to trade Jake Gensler, you have to be able to explain to him how it makes the Penguins better, if not this season, certainly going forward. So I think you have to bring him in as part of a plan. Um, that's not something he's always demanded. But um, let's face it, he's Sidney Crosby. He's the most important asset in the organization. Um, so I think you have to bring him as part of the plan if you're going to move him. Um, I think it's an easier conversation to have because one thing the previous regime did do is keep his best friends on the team, mm. which are um, Malkin and Latang. And, you know, I mean, I don't know that anybody gets everything that they want. And I think it's easier to go to Sid if the team isn't in contention um, to go, look, you want to win. We want to win. Um, we got a plan. This is how we execute it. But, by moving Jake, we get some assets that, by the way, are assets we can maybe turn into better players now. Um, here's the other thing. Um, I don't think the Penguins feel a threat, nor should they, that Sidney Crosby's going to leave. Um, Sid is a creature of habit. He's been in Pittsburgh 19 years. I mean, he, he has said publicly he never wants to play anywhere else. He doesn't have to go chasing a Stanley Cup to enhance his legacy. You know, he's going to go down as the greatest player of his generation, one of the greatest captains of all time. I mean, he's doing the impossible in Pittsburgh. He's making people question whether Mario Lemieux is the best Penguin ever, um, which in itself is kind of, you know, bizarro land when you think <laughs> about it. But, um, look, I think Sid wants to win. More than anything, Sid wants to win. And I keep telling people in Pittsburgh this, you know, they get enamored with this concept of rebuild as if that every time you pick in the top five of the draft, like the Penguins did for, you know, five years in a row, you end or four years in a row, you end up with Marc-Andre Fleury, Evgeny Malkin, Sidney Crosby, and Jordan Stahl. And by the way, in the second round one year, Chris Letang, like that doesn't happen. You're, you're lucky if you get one of those. Even if you're picking in the top three or five every year, um, the Penguins got all of them, right? I mean, you're talking Hall of Famers right there. They're all going to end up probably in the Hall of Fame. Um, so I think what you do is you, you go to Sid, you explain him the plan. You know, if by some weird reason Sidney wants out, um, that's going to be a very quiet thing done. But that's not going to happen. And here's the other thing about the Penguins, and I keep telling people this in Pittsburgh to get back to my point. There's not going to be a full-on rebuild as long as Sidney Crosby's in Pittsburgh because Sidney Crosby is the NHL's Tom Brady. He's not going to be what he was at 27, at 36, but he's going to be closer at 42 to what he is at 36 than anybody has a right to imagine. So... um I still don't think we've seen the end of Sidney Crosby's greatness. I've maintained if they get into the playoffs, he should win the Hart Trophy. There's a guy in Vancouver that I'm quite fond of, too, so he'd probably be on my ballot pretty high right now, too, But uh, in Hughes. But I just think that you're never going to rebuild with Sidney Crosby on your roster. That's just not that's not going to happen. Uh, Rob, really appreciate the time and the insight, man. It's always fascinating when these two teams meet up, given the uh, the amount of connections between them right now. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for the insight. Yeah, I'm not a gambler, but if you if you are, take the over tonight. All right. That's good. We appreciate <laughs> the advice. Thanks. Enjoy the game, Rob. Thanks, gentlemen. <laughs>
<laughs> that is Rob Rossi uh, from The Athletic with, uh, I thought, some very, very interesting insight into Rick Tockett, Jim Rutherford, and kind of their relationship and their M.O. and how it's similar from what it was in Pittsburgh and also some of the ways it's uh, different here to a di- in a different situation in Vancouver, Drance. Yeah, and the over... Well, at least he got his interview questions in. <laughs> at least he got his interview questions in. But yes, uh, the audio situation. Drancer's back on Monday. One more show tomorrow on the road. Then Drancer's back on Monday. And I don't know. I don't know when he's going on the road again. But we'll get through it, guys. We'll get through it together. Rager texts in. Got him so sad we're getting close to the end of Crosby's career. OV2. The incredible thing about Crosby is, I mean, like Ovi's, you know, it's a big story how he's dropped off this year, right? And all of a sudden Gretzky's record, it's in question, or him catching Gretzky's record. Gretzky's record might be safe, but him chasing it is in question in a major way. I just like, I I mean, I'm literally staring at Sidney Crosby's hockey DB page. It is absolutely phenomenal how this guy is able to keep doing it year after year after year after year still at the age of 36 and yeah you're right I mean it's it's almost doesn't feel real that the end is in sight because he's still such an elite player in the NHL uh but you're right the end is in sight unfortunately for Sidney Crosby best player of his generation so my advice would be enjoy these moments where we get to see him against uh the Canucks transfer I think we have you back here note how grateful I'm gonna be Every time I get to watch Crosby play live. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah like, I mean, you're I'm, there. You've got to savor even... a night like tonight now. Yeah. No kidding. Huh? And I was just saying, like, it seems it's almost hard to wrap your head around the end being closed because he's still so good. You know what I mean? This is not like, oh, mm-hmm. kind of retirement tour, you know, not really what he once was, but you're still going to go out and cheer for him and show him the respect. Like, he's still an elite player. He's still an absolutely phenomenal, uh, phenomenal player. And yet we also know that. Father Time's undefeated. The end has to be not too far down the road for him. Yeah, and, you know, we're lucky in Vancouver, too, in that we hosted one of his greatest goals. Mm -hmm. But, man, have the Penguins and the Canucks played a ton of good games. Like, high-scoring games, tons of fun games. Momentous games as well, thinking back to the uh, the end of the Travis Mm -hmm. Green and the Jim Benning era here. Um, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox um get your thoughts in we will talk to ryan clark from espn coming up next get his thoughts on the jake gensel rumblings what the canucks are doing right now how open the league is uh, at the top of the league in terms of nhl contenders right now some of the other stories happening around the nhl we'll do all of that uh, with ryan clark of espn coming up next year on canucks talk sportsnet 650 Welcome back to Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are live from the Kintech studio. Kintech, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet? 
What are you waiting for? 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, this text comes in. Drancer's connection dropping in and out more than Kuzmenko from the lineup card. Uh, and I, I feel like a little bit like Rick Tockett watching a, a spin move turn into a turnover at the blue line here, Trancer. But we have you back, right? I think so. Oh, we did it. Yeah, we did it. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers, fingers crossed that this works out now. Fingers crossed. You sound great. You sound great now. So Love everything, that. you're you're just like Kuzmenko. You're doing you're flying on the straight and narrow now uh for the rest of the show. Very, very exciting. Uh as mentioned, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. You can keep getting your thoughts in. Ryan Clark uh from ESPN, one of our faves, is gonna join us in a, a moment here on this segment. Uh and in fact, we currently have Ryan Clark on the line right now. Ryan, thank you as always for making some time for us. Happy New Year. How are you? Good, good, Jamie. I hope you're well. And to Thomas Andre Kuzmenko, Strasvichet, Kaktiposhivaj. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Very impressive. I was not prepared for that, Ryan. That was uh, that, that was something else. Um, so, I, before we get to the, uh, to the Canucks and some of the things going on with them right now, the biggest, most interesting story this week in the NHL is the Cutter Gauthier-Jamie Drysdale trade between the Flyers and the Anaheim Ducks. And just some of the commentary from the Flyers organization, the kind of mystery around what was going on. What have you made out of this, uh, this whole episode and the trade that resulted between the two teams? It's been fascinating. I mean, because when you think about the quotes, from Daniel Briere, it sounds like the Flyers exercised all their options. And it sounds like it went from the situation of Cutter Gauthier wanted to play there, he wanted to be there, to all of a sudden over time, it just he didn't want to be there. They tried to give him patience with, with that, only to then realize that they had to strike while the iron was hot, i.e. what he did in the World Juniors. Whereas if John Tortorella was a lot more direct in just saying, like, he didn't want to be here, he just didn't want to be here. And when you think about that, you think about all the things involving Kevin Hayes, it just, it's been a really sort of complex breakdown of how you think about what goes on with players and organizations and how there's just so much we don't know that, like, if you're Cutter Godier, this is going to be part of of your career for, for as long as you play. Like, we think about like what happened with Eric Lindros when he was drafted into the league. Uh, no, we're switching sports here, but you think about when Eli Manning was drafted. Mm. Like he was going to go be a San Diego Charger, and then he ended up being a New York Giant and won two Super Bowls, and Phillip Rivers had an extremely strong career. You could argue both are either going to be in the hall or borderline hall, whatever the case might be. But it's not the first time that we've seen this. It's just what makes this still different is it's the timing of everything. It's Edward Gauthier just was tied for the lead in points. He helped Team USA win a, a gold medal. He's looking like, hey, not only this really strong prospect, but someone who that you think can jump into a top six when his time at BC is done for an organization that has gone beyond what people thought this year because, hey, it was just this time a year ago or close to it, they were like, we're in a rebuild. Let's just be honest. We're in a rebuild. And you're seeing them now. And, like, they're a team that could conceivably either – get a wild card spot or finish somewhere in the top three, maybe close to two or three in, in, in their division. And so to then have your top prospect get traded and don't get me wrong. Like what you get in return is a top four defenseman who can facilitate a lot of things for a team that had extra defensemen because of what we've seen in their system mm -hmm. that's playing this year and what's coming down the line. 
it's a trade we understand from both GMs why it made sense, but on the whole, until you heard those quotes, it really did lead to questions of, like, what's going on? It's just you don't see that every day. Yeah, it was pretty fascinating, and just really how hard the Flyers organization has come out kind of leveling some of their, I don't even want to say accusations, but just their side of the story. I mean, they certainly, uh, as you said, this is going to follow uh, Gauthier around for his career, and we'll see if we ever do get the full story. Um, On the Canucks side of things, Ryan, you know, they played those three games in the New York area. They won all of them. They've reunited Elias Pettersson, JT Miller, and Brock Besser at the top of the lineup. Uh, we're excited here in Vancouver, I can tell you, covering this team right now with what they're doing. I don't know how closely you got to watch those that, that uh, three-game swing through New York, but what did you think about not just the Canucks winning those games, but kind of the style that they've done it in recently here? Well, for one, they can really score at any point, but that's something we've we've all known. But the second thing is this, and the Jersey game is really emblematic of that. Like, even as teams look to threaten – they find ways to hold them off. Like, Jersey just kept threatening and threatening, and they kept holding them off. With the Rangers game, see the Rangers go up one nothing. The Canucks behind with not only three straight goals, but three straight goals from, from different players. And at the heart of all that, you could argue, is Elias Pedersen and Brock Besser, which, again, we've talked about this a lot. Like, Brock Besser is just having this season of seasons. But, again, like, this is just what they do. Whereas if you think about the Islanders game – Yes, they jump out to a 3 nothing lead, 4-1 by the end of second. But it's against the team, and, and you could say this about all three of those teams, that not only are playoff teams, but in the case of the Islanders, like defense is at the heart of like what they do. Two-way play is at the heart of, of their structure. And what you saw the Canucks do was, yes, they were games that in a sense were high scoring, but like you saw them not only either jump ahead in these games and build a lead and thin people off, but even in the games where, again, the Ranger game they fell behind, they still came out of that first period with a with a strong response. Whereas if with the Islanders game, you take a three nothing lead going into midway of the second period, it, it's pretty strong to let you know like this is their mo. And so what you saw was complete performances from them. I mean, sure, if you're with hockey, you probably don't want to see as many goals get given up, but at the same time, like you saw them do well in various situations. Ryan, where do you think? Quinn Hughes is in like the wider national imagination as we discuss, you know, how say, say I were to say to you, well, how do you tier the top five NHL defensemen? I'm not actually asking that, but I might. Um, But in terms of what this season has done and elevating his like league wide Q rating, where's he at right now? Do you think? You would think he'd be in top 10, and he should be in top five, but it seems like the complicated part with top five is you think about who the top five are going to be, and again, we're taking a guess who they would be for everyone, and we're not going to get into all of these. We ain't got that kind of time. But the point is those players have something Quinn Hughes doesn't, which is they've had the longevity of doing this, and not only they've had the longevity, but their longevity is easier to see. Whereas with someone like Quinn Hughes, like if you had watched the Canucks prior to this season – especially the second half of last season, you know how good he is. Like You could argue the second half of last season was some of the best hockey he's played since he's been in the NHL. But what you're seeing of him in the Canucks this season in reality might be more of a a nationwide or at least a continental-wide introduction to people. Like, yes, if you live in in Western Canada or just Canada as a whole, you're aware of him. 
But if you live other spots in the United States where you don't watch the Canucks or you don't see the Canucks more frequently, it's not saying that you're not aware of Quinn Hughes, but he might not be someone who comes to mind, whereas this season he should. But then again, it's like, well, how do you compare him against guys who, let's say, maybe had that longevity? Because like, it's kind of like the Charlie McAvoy discussion. Like, You think about who are the top five defensemen, and there's going to be a chance Charlie McAvoy's name gets left out of it. And while it seems like a kind of a bizarre thing to do because, like, Charlie McAvoy is everything, everywhere, all at once, it's still one of those things where there is so much competition where it's like, okay, you leave out a Charlie McAvoy, but, like, who, but who do you replace him with? And it seems like with Quinn Hughes, that's kind of sort of the discussion he's in. But, of course, right now he looks like one of the two favorites for the Norse Trophy. And if he wins the Norse, that seems like that's something that could change a lot of the sort of, let's say, discourse around – Quinn Hughes and where people rate him. But as far as this season, yes, he's clearly top five, top three, top two for being on. <laughs> top two for me as well, my friend. Um, you, you're down in Seattle. I'm just curious to get your take on the Kraken season stabilizing and that team beginning to play some of their best hockey over the course of the past three weeks. It's fascinating because it goes back to something that we heard at the Winter Classic, which was, they had figured out their identity because last year this was a team that we all saw. They could get down to nothing when a game for two. They, while they had Martin Jones in net, it's one of those things where because of the save percentages, because you look at the Kraken, weird to say historically they've only been around three years, but through those first two years, their team's save percentage had been in the bottom third of the league. And so it was one of those last year they could really afford to rely on their goal scoring. They were scoring at a rate of, north of 11% this year, it's been closer toward the bottom. At one point in time, it was the lowest shooting percentage in the league. And what you've seen them do is really go back to the two-way prowess that w- that they were built around, except for now they've taken a mix of the two-way prowess that they wanted to use in year one to help them win games. But some of the elements of last year where they're getting in the transition faster, they're playing these cross-ice passes, like they're relying on everyone, not just one person to score goals, but also – you have a defensive structure that limits chances, but even then you're seeing Joey Decor not only have the best performances of his career, but you could argue it's the best performances a Seattle goalie has had in general in the three years this franchise has existed. So it's all those different things that have really helped this team go from, okay, are they going to be a lottery team? Are they just going to miss? To you look at them now and like, yes, they're tied on points with the Edmonton Oilers. Of course, the Oilers have played uh, three fewer games, but they're doing it at a time where it looks like the Oilers cannot lose. Uh, the Predators have been able to stay in it and, and remain consistent. We're seeing the Kings go through a little bit of a slide right now, but like if you're the Kraken, you're getting hot and you're getting consistent at the right time. Ryan, you know, one of the things we were talking about on the show yesterday as it relates to the Canucks and whether or not they're, you know, true Stanley Cup contenders is the league just seems kind of very wide open this year. Do you see, Can is there one team you can point to and say, hey, they're the favorite to win the Cup right now? Or is it, you know, because I think about in years past, right, whether it's been, you know, the Avalanche in the year they won the Cup or, uh, you know, Tampa Bay in some of their dominant years, and you can look at a team and say, wow, if things if they get just a couple breaks, they're the favorite to win the Cup, no doubt about it it just feels like we're missing that team or those couple of teams at the top of the standings this year so there's a couple reasons for that part of it could be we saw how dominant boston was in the regular season 
they lose in the first mm-hmm. round. And so some of it could just be – it depends on what happens when you get into the postseason. Some of it, too, is it's literally what we just talked about with Quinn Hughes, which is what has been your recent body of work. And so, like, if you just look at who the top teams are right now, we just went through Boston, and there's also the questions of – do the Bruins have the top six center depth to really make a run in the playoffs? Like, that's a fair question. With the Panthers, we know what they are. They made it to the cup final. With the Rangers, we know what they are. It's just a matter of seeing, can they take the next step? And with the Hurricanes, they were the preseason Eastern Conference favorite. They weren't that far off last year. So, again, like with those four teams, like you have an idea of what they are. Whereas if you shift to the West, the Winnipeg Jets were – at an alarmingly high rate last year where they were winning games. And then it was around this time and in February where you started to see that skid. They get into the postseason. They lose in five games to the Golden Knights. So it's a question of, like, what makes this year's Jets team different? Part of it, of course, is the depth of that they acquired in the Pierre-Luc Dubois trade, but also it's other things with them, too, the biggest being they are winning games without Kyle Connor. Like, full stop, they're winning games without Kyle Connor, but it's just like, how do you know what this is going to look like in a playoff setting? With the Avs, we know how this is going to look, but we have to accept that the team two years ago is different than the team last year that's deep, different than the team this year. Like, Ryan Johansson was supposed to solve the second-line center issues, which has been a long-standing issue in Colorado. He has the lowest average ice time of any second-line center in the Central Division. He's, like, 11th in ice time among Avalanche players with more than 30 games played this year. Like, that's a concern for what was supposed to be like one of their big moves. Mm. Dallas, you know what Dallas is, but again, like Dallas used last year as that jumping off point. So it's like, what's Dallas going to be this year knowing that the two teams above them in the division could conceivably win the whole thing. And then you look at just the Pacific Vancouver is, is that wild card. Cause we just don't know what the Canucks are going to be like in the playoffs. Cause we've not seen this iteration of the Canucks. And when we talk about this iteration of the Canucks, the thing that does not get discussed enough is they literally rebuilt that defense in months. They literally rebuilt that defense in months. And that does not get talked about enough. It seems. But then you look at what Vegas is and you, you know how that formula is going to work. Like you don't want to say they're the San Antonio Spurs, during the days of Parker, Ginobili, and Duncan, where you're like, just get them into the playoffs. But you know what they are. Whereas if the Kings, can they win in the first round? Mm. And that just seems like that's the thing with everyone this year, is like Vegas is that one team you look at and you say, you know what this is, because they have all but a handful of players returning from last year. Florida, it's one of those things where like they are still winning games without Matthew Kachuk being at his best. So you look at those two teams, and it's like, okay, you know what they are, but how many times have we seen teams get this far, but then there's something or someone that gets in the way of going back to where they were from the previous year, whereas if everyone else, there are these sort of like, yeah, but questions. Like, yes, the Jets are doing incredibly well, but are they better than the team that lost in the first round last year? Can they avoid that mishap? Can the Stars take the next step? Can the Canucks' success translate in the postseason? Can the Kings win in the first round? And then the one that we're all not talking about is if the Edmonton Oilers are the eighth seed, is that the most dangerous eighth seed you've ever seen? Yeah. Congrats like, on like, congrats like, on winning the conference. Here you get to play Connor McDavid in the first round. Well, yeah, not only Connor McDavid, but like a team that when you look at since they hired Chris Knobloch, like yes, they lead the league in scoring with goals per game. But defensively, the Edmonton Oilers are a top five, top seven team in terms of 
goals allowed, shots allowed, scoring chances for 60, like, you name it. Like, they have been a completely different team. And, like, let's just say that they end up winning one of those two wild card spots. Like, that's nothing against the teams who are the higher seeds. But, like, that's not exactly the kind of welcoming gift you want if you're going into the playoffs. Like, hey, take on an Oilers team that's literally had to run the gauntlet to be here, and they know that this is the time of year where everything that's been said about them, like, this is when it matters most. And Ryan, you know, you mentioned the Canucks kind of being wild cards in the in the Stanley Cup contender picture. And the big debate we've been having here in Vancouver this week is how aggressive should they be ahead of the deadline? And if the right target is there, should they be willing to pay, you know, a hefty price to go in and add help at the deadline? And, you know, they're not the your, your typical kind of all-in team, right, where they're a perennial contender right in the middle of their window and you understand, okay, they're going to go out and make a splash at the deadline. But, you know, I look at it and so many things are going right for them they're in first in their division right now they're they've got a good chance to finish there uh at the end of the season what are the kind of criteria you look at to say to to determine whether it's worth it for a team to really push chips in at the deadline one do you have the cap space to do it yeah Two, if you don't do you have the players and the the capital to make it work the third is, especially when it comes to something like draft capital, are you willing to move on from it? Especially in this era where more and more teams are trying to hold on to draft picks because, again, it allows you to add talent but without paying through the nose for it. And then the other thing is this, too. Do you feel there's someone on your roster who could possibly fill that void? And also what we've seen the Canucks do in the offseason – and again, this season with the Nikita Zadorov trade is like they've addressed their issues, which last year was defense. Philip Ronick knew, Zadorov knew, Susie knew, Cole knew. Like that is four new top six defensemen that you brought in in six or seven months. And so it's a matter of looking at like, okay, what do you think the areas of concern are? And then if you can address it, but then if you can address it, especially in the Canucks case, how do you free up the cap space to, to go make it work? Ryan, before we let you go, we've hit the halfway mark. Pacific Division tiers. Let's update them, and and let's all update them. Like we'll all we'll all we'll all give them, but you go first, and then Jamie and I'll uh, follow up with ours, and we can discuss it. So we will go with the Canucks number one. All right. How not the Golden Knights number two at the moment with the understanding that even though they are three and seven in their last 10, when it comes playoffs, like they know what they're doing. Number three would be the Edmonton Oilers just because they have looked like a juggernaut. Four for now would be the Kings. Five would be the Kraken with the understanding of like three through five could change at any moment because those three teams are separated by four points in the standings. And then after that, probably the Flames, then the Ducks. And then, you know what? God bless in the San Jose Sharks, which 12, 12 in a row. Like, wow. Yeah. We thought they, they had have a minus 90 goal <laughs> differential. Like, 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 think about that. Like, Anaheim and Chicago together have a minus 89 goal differential in the Sharks. Oh, my God. minus 90. 
But, like, it is, like, they are barely averaging two goals a game. Like, it is, like, it is wild what the Sharks are going through this. We thought they had, like, salvaged their season. Not, like, salvaged, but just became a normal bad team after the historic bad start. And then, like, we all stopped paying attention, and they just rattled off 12 losses in a row. Again, <laughs> after. It's really, well, really incredible. Well, let me leave you with this. because I And I'm sorry to do this, but this is a very dread thing to do. What does it say that Joey Decor has more wins by himself than the San Jose Oof. Oof, yeah, there's a lot of stats that you can break out about, like, and especially the Canucks, because they've been just so on fire. They've actually scored almost double the goals that the, that the Sharks have this year. And some of the, like, individual players that are practically outscoring, you know, whole swaths of the Canucks roster is pretty remarkable. Okay, I'll run through my, my tiers in the Pacific Division here. I'm with you, Ryan. I'm going to put the Canucks number one in a tier by themselves right now based on what they've done so far this year. I'm going to put Vegas, L.A., and Edmonton all together in Tier 2. I'll have Seattle and Calgary in Tier 3, and then the Ducks in a Tier by themselves, and the Sharks very much, very, very, very much in a Tier by themselves uh, at the bottom of the Pacific Division right now. Drancer? Oh, Dr- we we might have dropped uh, dropped Drance there. So that was just you and me. So this is perfect. But, but Drance, is that the worst thing I, in the world? I was going to say, Drance doesn't get the last word of this conversation, Ryan. We did it. We found a way to prevent him from getting the last word. You can never get any word of her being on. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, love, I feel so bad because he's a genuinely like nice, sweet man. But let's face it, if he wasn't a hockey writer, he'd be the perfect wrestling promoter. He would be like... <laughs> Canadian Paul Heyman or, or Paul Bearer or, like, Jimmy Hart. Like, yep. instead of yelling into a megaphone, it would just be drance at normal level. And, yeah, that, like, that, like, that is that kind. God bless him. Bobby the Brain Heenan, for sure. No doubt no doubt about it. Uh, Orion, we always appreciate the time, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for playing along with us. We'll chat soon, I'm sure. You got it. Thanks for having me. That is Ryan Clark from ESPN covering the NHL. Weighing in. On the Canucks, where they sit kind of in the uh, in the Western Conference and NHL hierarchy right now. And, you know, the more I've been thinking, because this, look, this has been going around right now, obviously. The discussion about who should the Canucks target, what should they target, what should they be willing to give up, all of those things uh, at the moment. And I do think the fact that the Canucks are not, as I was saying to Ryan, that super traditional, hey, they've been good for a couple of years, they're good again, they're a perennial contender, they're right in the middle of their window, okay, that's who should go for it. The Canucks don't fit that mold, and I understand that. That's not them, right? This this year is very, very different than what's come before it, and I think because they don't fit that typical mold of a buyer at the deadline, or at least an all-in buyer at the NHL trade deadline, I think it's been a little bit hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around the idea of the team pushing all in and really trying to make a splash. But, you know, they also don't fit the mold of a team that, oh, young, hey, keep your powder dry because you're going to have better shots down the road, right? Yeah, there's some youth on the team, but you also look at guys like Pedersen and and Besser and, 
and Hughes, and they're right in the middle of their statistical prime. So, yeah, it's true, but they're not that classic perennial contender who you expect to trade their first-round pick every year to make an upgrade at the deadline, but they're also not, you know, the kind of prototypical young team ahead of schedule uh, where you want to keep your assets in reserve for better days ahead. I think they're, they're a little bit unique in that regard, and I think that makes it more difficult for people to really zero in uh, on what they should do at the deadline. Uh, what's going on, Drancer? Hey, bud. We're back. <laughs> Sorry about this. No. Adventure day for us audio-wise with me in Pittsburgh. But uh, as we were, uh, as I was saying to Ryan, uh, and Ryan was very excited about this, uh, you didn't get the last word in the interview. So he was thrilled that, that you <laughs> dropped off right before. He would enjoy the, that. Right, right before uh, the well, interview ended. Well, before we go to break, what did you think of his tears? Uh... I mean, he didn't really put them in tiers. He just kind of power ranked it, right? But uh, yeah, that's okay though. That's what did you fine. think of that's his power fine. rankings? I mean, I I enjoyed that he had the Canucks at number one. I thought Would you that, have the Canucks number one. I did put the Canucks at number one. Actually, yeah, I put the mm. Canucks in a tier by themselves right now, um, and then Vegas, L.A., Edmonton together, Seattle and Calgary in a tier, and then Anaheim and the Sharks each in separate tiers at the bottom. Yeah, honestly, it's a really difficult exercise. I just can't, like I kind of like, think I'm tempted to put Edmonton at the top or at least in a tier of the Canucks, but I just like and maybe this is stupid of me, but like I I just look at it and like the gap in the standings is still so significant, I can't quite get there, especially not with what we've seen from the Canucks this week. Yeah, we're deep enough into the season too that the fact that the Canucks, you know, have outscored the opposition by almost well more than 50 goals 5 on 5, I think needs to like take precedence like a, a big lead in the standings plus that I think that yeah. puts them number one um I, I just I think I'd have them one but I'd have them in the same tier as LA two okay and then I'd you know with inc an incredible amount of trepidation put LA or sorry put Edmonton and Vegas three four in some order with also a belief that honestly those might be the two best teams not just in the Pacific on true talent, but in the league. They're like the sleeping it, giant tier kind of in the Pacific, although Edmonton's not exactly sleeping right now, but you know what I mean. Yeah, that's the – they're three and four now, but will you be surprised if they're, you know, hoisting a, a cup in, mm. in June? Like, I won't. Mm -hmm. So it's um, a bit of a gauntlet. And then, I, you know, Seattle, then Calgary in a different tier. Seattle, Calgary's in its own misery tier. And then Anaheim. <laughs> In a separate tier from a the lot Sharks, of a lot of special misery misery tiers towards the bottom of the uh, of the Pacific Division this year. The one thing yeah. the one thing I will say about Vegas because I don't disagree about look if you if you win the division or you win the conference and you get Vegas in the first round that is tough man that that's really really tough. You know, Ryan made the allusion to, uh, like, the Spurs of years past or, like, you know, the Shaq and Kobe Lakers or whatever where it's kind of, hey, get in the playoffs and then flip the switch once you're there. I don't know how – I think it's harder to do that in hockey, especially with the way the intensity ramps up in the playoffs. I'm not saying the Knights can't do it, but just, you know, hey, they had to go all the way to the to the Stanley Cup final, play a lot of extra hockey last year. They're an older team. Wear and, stare, wear and tear starts to catch up to you. I'm not shoveling dirt on them, right, because it could be the kind of thing where if they have an early exit this year, that actually gives them a chance to rest up and then they're really good next year. But 
I'm not convinced that all of a sudden they're going to, you know, April's going to roll around and they're going to be the defending Stanley Cup champion Golden Knights. Not saying it can't happen, but I think there's just enough uncertainty about how how easy it is to do that in the NHL that Again, not saying I'm signing up for the Canucks to play the Golden Knights in round one, but I can see at least a glimmer of uh, of hope in my logic there. Yeah, I mean, be careful though. Like they play, they host Boston tonight. Yeah, we might see it tonight. You know, like we definitely saw it when they played the Canucks. So every now and then, this Vegas Golden Knights just shows us their absolute fastball and it's still terrifying yeah, it's still pretty They're good. just clearly not doing it consistently uh all right we're gonna take a break final segment of the show coming up here on canucks talk uh, we will hear from canucks head coach rick talkett ahead of a big one on the road for the team taking on the pittsburgh penguins more of your texts as well it is canucks talk sportsnet 650 Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance. We are live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or our beautiful Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. It is a Canucks game day. They are in Pittsburgh. Uh, to face Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins. We'll hear from Rick Tockett in a second. I did want to read this text uh, from Tyler in the inbox. He says, uh, for tomorrow, since I don't think you can do it off the cuff, draft Canucks trade targets uh, based on acquisition cost, likelihood, ability to extend at least for one year, and, of course, fit. I like that idea from Tyler. I did have somebody DM me as well on Twitter, Drancer, saying that we should do tiers for Canucks trade targets. So I like it. People are, uh, people are, are, are trying to fit the Canucks – trade talk into our formats which i really appreciate tiers drafts whatever we can do we'll find a way to do it yeah i mean trade tiers for like trade target tiers is that's athletic <laughs> first <laughs> that's your bread and butter to the athletic first <laughs> yeah you'll write it at the athletic we'll talk about it on canucks talk we will we will get the pipeline going on that one it's on a big list of like five weeks worth of deadline content ideas that I've got scribbled out. And I, I you know, I'm going to be honest with you, right? Like I'm just really excited to cover a deadline for a team that's buying. Yes. You know, like it's way more fun. Well, I got to say, I mean, I was, uh, you know, I saw the, uh, the, the Twitter poll that Jason Broff put out, right. About, about acquiring uh, Jake Gensel. We talked about it earlier. You know, we had the big discussion and back and forth, with uh, with Don Taylor and Rick Dollywell on the crossover about adding. I know they were talking about it on their show, right? Like, hey, would you be willing to pay this price for Jake Gensel? And I got to say, like, I, I, I was, like, levitating on the way to work. I love this so much. I love that we are here. And, you know, I was thinking back, and look, obviously – 
Sometimes I think we get uh, a little bit lost in the weeds of like armchair GMing and don't focus on the game. I don't mean you and me. I mean just like in general sports fans, right? Don't talk about the actual games as much. But at the same time, like this is what you do. This is what so many fans do between games when you're really engaged, when you're really bought in. And like I was thinking back to when I was a fan in the kind of, you know, the Sedin era around 2011. Like I spent a long time figuring out like can the Canucks acquire Zach Parise to play with Ryan Kessler, right? Like I was obsessed <laughs> with this idea. You know what I mean? And it's great that people are back in this kind of mode, right? I love, And not everyone's going to agree. That's fine. Some people have no interest in trading big assets or whatever. But I love it. I just absolutely love that the team is good enough to support these kinds of conversations and some of these, like, pie-in-the-sky uh, dream scenarios going into the trade deadline. It's incredible. I Well, how about this? What, what about a tier for Canucks needs okay like what they should target okay I like it I like I'll, it. I'll let you go first and, if you're ready and then we can start to like fill in the uh you know fill in the blanks a little bit later on maybe next yeah, week specifics. even okay I like that I okay I'll start and this has changed from a couple of weeks ago now that the lotto line is together if you offer me without getting into specifics number one thing it's two-way second line center that's what I'm targeting more than anything else two-way second line center legit top line center with two-way value uh, that's my number one, no doubt about it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And and I think two for me would be like legitimate top of the lineup piece. Doesn't matter the position. And even like forward slash defense? Oh, yeah. Doesn't matter the mm. position. Just bring in the biggest, most impactful piece you can. Yeah. You know, like if you can get the perfect center. Guy with some size, guy who can maybe play the net front on the power play, uh, guy who can win you some key draws, guy who can kill penalties. Like, obviously, that's unbelievable, right? That would fit a lot of this team's sort of big picture needs, but also specific, like, hockey needs in various areas of special teams and at five-on-five, five, right? Like, you're, you're Yoel Eriksson-Eck mm -hmm. tier guy. Um, yeah, that's, like, that's number one. But number two is don't care. Get the most impactful piece you can get. Would be number two. Yeah, and that's why I'm still interested in the Jake Gensel rumors, right? Like, again, okay, maybe you have to split up the lotto line or, you know, you want him to play with Pedersen, whatever, but you just add a star player. You add a star player who's going to help you. And, you know, I haven't really thought about it in those terms on the blue line, right? Because, you know, you have Quinn Hughes, you have Philip Ronick at the top, but, yeah, like a legit... <laughs> A legit impact guy on the blue line, man. That sure wouldn't hurt either. To if you could figure out a way to add that, I, I think for me beyond the second line center, I'm tempted to say impact winger still because I do still think yes. that's a, a an area of need. But I think you could make the case for like legit top four defensemen too. You know, no question, no like ah, they're more of a four five like legit top uh, top four defenseman. Would you have that or the winger first? The winger. All right. Because I think if you get into the type of defenseman it would take before I'd, you know, elevated above X, like, solid top six winger, uh, I think you're getting into a guy like a Jacob Chikrin, who at that mm. point I'd be like, yeah, that's a number two guy. Like, mm -hmm. that's a top-of-the-lineup player any position. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I think by the time you get to, like, you know, because when you're saying a top four guy, you're almost always meaning a four <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, but I think by the time you get into the type of defenseman that I'd put ahead of any forward, uh, that's that's the way that I'd lean. And I think that's the team's posture too. 
like, uh, you know, it's sort of been characterized to me from various uh, folks around the league that, like, the club's more watching on defensemen. Don't don't write it off. But I think forward, top six forward, and, and I think the way the club sees it, I think they're pretty content. Like, if they got a Gensel-quality guy, I think they'd feel comfortable running, you know, Miller, Pedersen, Bluger and Suter down the middle and being like, yeah, that's an unbelievable, uh, that's an embarrassment of riches. And we buy that we have two top six caliber centermen and we don't need to play this loaded top line. We can fatten it up a bit, especially if we add another impact winger. So, you know, I think, I think the way the club, the club, the way I think the club would tear it would be like top six forward position agnostic and then sort of a defenseman beneath that Mm. with it more being like a watch as opposed to, you know, a, a top priority. Well, yeah, as we were saying with the Tanev uh, mentioned from Rick Dollywall earlier that we talked about in the whiteboard, you know, if you bring in a forward, you're knocking out what? Like Niels Amon out of the lineup potentially, right? Or maybe not even if Kuzmenko's going out the other way. And hey, credit to Niels Amon for, you know, establishing the role he has at the NHL level. But you don't look at that as like, oh boy, what are we going to do there? They already have a bit of a log jam on the blue line, right? So you're, you're knocking out somebody that you've invested in either through trade or or paying in free agency uh, or a guy with six million dollars uh, as his AAV and Tyler Myers and that becomes a much more difficult proposition and you know maybe there even has to be a corresponding move there so I do understand that and then wrapping up I guess would just be like depth maybe size at forward you know depth size at, at, at forward would be kind of the last one if we're if we're tiering Canucks trade needs Yes, yeah, size and penalty killing ability, mm. right? Like those would sort of be like depth forwards with size and or penalty killing ability, ability and ideally both. Like think about Neil Zaman and his perch in the lineup and how tied it is to the fact that he, you know, he's a long player, right? Who's like he's a lanky guy, yep. um, disruptive as a result, who, you know, I don't think they feel like they can afford to lose off the PK. And I think that's kept him in the lineup. Like, yep. I think that's been a big part of why he's been a mainstay. You know, if you can find a marginal upgrade on that 13th spot, like, that's sort of kind of where we're at. But I agree. I think that's below, you know, an additional defensive D, uh, like, depth add. Yeah. And, I mean, look at Noah Juleson as well. And That's on the blue line. But in terms of him earning his spot in the lineup, making it really difficult for Rick Tockett to bring him out, wanting to get him back in on a regular basis, and a lot of that – Uh, comes down to the penalty kill as well. Okay, so there you go. We've mapped out the shopping list, the potential shopping list uh, for the Vancouver Canucks, and we can start to uh, try to pencil in some names to go along with those general criteria as we get closer and closer to the trade deadline. Okay, as mentioned, Canucks game day down in Pittsburgh. Drancer's there to cover it tonight. Let's hear from Rick Tockett after the game day skate, speaking to the media. So what's it like to be saw Gino, he said, with the Penguin West, you know, like uh, all the guys we have here. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good to be back, though. A lot of guys are excited to be back. What do you make of this matchup tonight? Well, I mean, you know, if you look at analytics, Pittsburgh's up one of the top. I mean, you know, they've, they've struggled a little bit early in the season, but I think they're a really strong team. And anytime you got a Sidney Crosby in your team, you're always in it. I mean, he's playing outstanding hockey. You know, it's, it's even uh, I, from afar, I watch him and marvel at how, how his game doesn't slip, how good he is. They say styles make the match. 
How would you <clears throat> characterize the styles of these two teams and the matchup? Yeah, similar. I know, like, uh, spent a lot of time with Sully over the years and, uh, you know, <laughs> learning from him some stuff. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of philosophies that I like that he does. So there, there is similar uh, parts of our, of our team uh, with the Penguins for sure. With the way you... Yeah, Teddy's a he's a system guy. You know, he's one of those guys. Uh, when a coach leaves, he's preaching what the coaches are saying. So that's why we got him. Um, obviously, his PK has really helped, um, and he's really solidified. Uh, you know, playing with Garland and Teddy. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Dakota. Uh, those guys have been really good. Last, especially the last 25 games. So um, just a, he's got some offense to his game. He's really shown it this year. Did you did you actually envision this kind of success? Like, I watched a lot of your press conferences when you got there last year. It's just amazing how it's come in a short period of time. Yeah, I wasn't really worried about the result. I mean, obviously, we're judged on wins and losses, but to me, the process and, uh, you know, what we had to accomplish, you know, to get there, you know, I think, you know, you got to go through the procession to win, and I think that was something that we really wanted to, the players and the coaches to have a buy-in, you know, be a partnership with. Yeah, wins and losses obviously you get judged by, but you got to go through the stuff. You know, you got to do the practices and the way we want to play, the video, the way we train, the way we, in the off-season, things like that. That has to be done first before you win or lose. With the way you guys have put together more complete efforts over the last few, what do you need to see from this group to continue to build and, and take that consistency to another level? Well, I think we're striving for consistency. I think when you know, you raise the bar a little bit higher and higher than come expectations, then the discipline's got to even be more. The trust has to be more. Everything has to be more when the, the, the bar is risen. Um, and I think that's something that we're, we're going to ask this group to find more. And it's hard to do because there's only so many teams that win at the end of the year. So um, just got to keep pushing to, to raise that bar. What's it like having those big, tall defensemen on your team now? It's kind of different, you know. You don't, you don't see as much of that in the league. Yeah, I just think it's, uh, you know, if you can, if you got a defenseman that's long that can skate, grab him. That's the way I look at him. As soon as, as soon as he can, be. they're tough to find. Um, they're, they're, you know, you can play. You know, you can give the teams outside stuff when you have big defensemen. You know, uh, you know, the, the def big defense when they get in trouble is when they get out of structure and they start running around. That's when you can utilize. You know, that's when you can kind of show their weakness but for our d who can skate they're, they're really good structured defensemen so if they're going to get beat it's usually from the outside and we protect the middle so I, that's what i really respect about our defense is they they know how to protect the guts of the ice mark friedman i know he's not an everyday guy in your lineup but just when he is and what have you seen from him yeah freed i'll be honest with you, when we were struggling uh we had some injuries and death problems on defense and he came in there and gave us we went into florida won that game we went i forget where we, we played another team we beat them and freeds was in the lineup so and we needed a defenseman so uh when patrick got him um great in the locker room he knows his role right now um you know so he's he's added a lot of spark to our team rick uh cole back in demco starts any lineup changes uh kohler's uh, going for jules yeah. and then uh Demer and yeah and yeah. the fours are the same yeah how <clears throat> different a player is sam lafferty now from what you saw when he was Pit. Yeah, I wasn't here with Sam, but um, just from su intel from Sully, intel from Luke Richardson, Chicago. Um, you know, he's <clears throat> he's the presence we need where a guy will go to the net. He's been getting a lot of goals around that net area, which we were well, we needed those type of players. And I think you know, what's he got eight or nine or ten goals right now? That's a lot of, of, of a middle driver hanging around the net.
That is Canucks head coach Rick Tockett speaking to the media ahead of the game against the Pittsburgh Penguins and, of course, talking about all of the connections and reuniting with uh, a lot of familiar faces in Pittsburgh, including uh, Gino Malkin, who's calling them Penguins West right now. Final few minutes of the show here, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I wanted to read this one from Mike in Vancouver, who says, uh, you know, we're talking trade targets and trade target tiers for the Canucks before the talk at audio there. Mike says, not to spoil the all-in party, but I think Drancer said yesterday there were 12 teams who might think they have a shot this year. That means a seller's market and a lot of competing buyers. When teams win bidding contests at deadline, they overpay. Uh, Pittsburgh will want two first-rounders and our best prospect. Uh, he's meaning for Jake Gensel there. I did think it was interesting earlier in the show that Rob Rossi was – uh, a little skeptical of how much draft picks themselves, especially late first-round draft picks, would interest the Penguins. But it still wouldn't shock me if a first-round pick was involved in that cost. You know, it's an interesting point that Mike brings up there, right, that could it be an extreme seller's market? And, you know, he says, look, when you win a bidding contest, by definition, you're overpaying at the deadline. He's not wrong about that, right? Like, there, that that's a, a known phenomenon, right, where if you value something the most – there's a good chance that you're overvaluing it, but there's kind of no way out of that, right? There's no way to avoid that trap, and it comes down to, this is always the discussion in free agency, right? Okay, yes, you might have to overpay for a player, but is it worth, quote-unquote, overpaying them just to make sure that you have them in the lineup? And I think there's a similar dynamic uh, at the trade deadline. Yeah, there's good, there might be an element of sticker shock, but if it gets that guy in the lineup – you might just have to deal with that versus, you know, going the safe and, and more prudential route uh, and not paying what the pieces are. I, I, I'm glad you spotlighted that text because it stood out to me as well. Uh, I think it's a really prudent point, and I think it does bear monitoring as this market shapes up in the lead-up to the deadline, especially because Canucks Hockey Operations leadership has a penchant for setting the market themselves, mm. right? I mean, we literally saw it last deadline season where the Horvat trade happened and in some ways set market prices. And then by the time the deadline had passed, it was like, you know, the, taking that second year of Beauvillier really probably was out of step, right, with, uh, with market prices given, you know, his contributions and level of play and, and how reluctant everyone else was often getting paid to take on that extra year of term where it didn't really look like the Canucks got an extra asset to do so in facilitating that deal. So, you know, I, I do think when you look around the league and when we even try and like come up with targets, right? Like one of the reasons I think Gensel is being glommed onto so much as a key talking point is it's pretty hard to come up with other. Yep desirable pieces that could be available, right? I mean, it, we, like we all know Lindholm, we all know Gensel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a long list. These trade bar boards, you know, that, that are being run by the likes of Frank Saravalli and my colleagues, you know, Chris Johnston and Pierre Lebrun at The Athletic, like they're not exactly loaded with mm -hmm. difference makers. And I do think there's a lot of teams that fancy themselves buyers and, and you know, even those teams that are selling – like, there's no Tom Ash hurdle type. You know, there's no clear and evident, like, top target even. And, and you know, I do think that could send prices skyward and, and send prices skyward for players poised to make, uh, you know, not the so same sort of impact that you'd hope to get from 
you know, a, a big deadline. From a splashy swing. deadline, Ed. Yeah, I do wonder how, because I think it's a good point and an interesting point to see where it goes. I do wonder how it interacts with just how difficult so many teams, not the Canucks, but so many other teams find it to make trades given uh, the hard cap environment. And I think this is where the Andre Kuzmenko thing especially becomes really interesting for the Canucks, right? If you, if they are willing to move on from him and they, are, and they do find a way to get the full freight of that deal off of their books, that opens up some fairly significant salary cap flexibility. And if you are in a really competitive buyer's market ahead of the deadline, having that flexibility, that extra edge on so many contenders who, like the Canucks, are right up against the cap or in LTAI, that could be the kind of thing that could help you win the bidding for an impact player, right? And I think that's why, you know, you brought it up in terms of, well, how much would they even trust him in the playoffs? When you look at it from that perspective and from how important that cap space could be going into the deadline, I know Kuzmenko's not the big talking point right now because the team's playing so well, but I still think that makes him a really fascinating piece uh, for the Canucks to potentially play in some way before the deadline. I mean, honestly, I think... I think you have to think about it from the vantage point of they might have to play yeah. that chip, you know, just given that, like, and we'll see. You know, I think he's played better since coming back into the lineup and playing with Puse and uh, Ilya Mikheyev on that second line. You know, hopefully that continues and hopefully some of the offense starts to come from him. Hopefully you start to get more from PP1 with him helping drive that bus. But, you know, if you're not going to use a player, it's tough. When you mm-hmm. get into the playoffs. Yeah, especially when you have that much committed and it could, you know, could open mm-hmm. uh, open up space for you to do something with a player you would really use when you get into the playoffs. Enjoy the game tonight. Thanks for listening. We are back. Final show of the week tomorrow. Friday edition of the show. We'll catch you tomorrow here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650.